Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds, it's Amit Coyle. Thank you for joining us for this CNCR. In this discussion, we dive into a particularly challenging case that lies at the intersections of multiple disciplines, including congenital heart disease, critical care, cardiology, cardiothoracic surgery, multimodality imaging, and more. We delve into nuances with our colleagues from Cornell University Cardiology Fellowship with Drs. Jaya Kanduri, Dan Liu, Joe Wang, and their fellowship program director and expert for this case, Dr. Harsimran Singh. With the release of this episode, we are so very proud to welcome the Weill Cornell Cardiology Fellowship Program to the Cardiunerts Healy Honor Roll, the family of programs which support our mission to democratize cardiovascular education, and are especially honored to welcome Dr. Jaya Kanduri into the Cardiunerts family as the FIT Ambassador from Cornell. Remember everyone, Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. You can claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description and relevant speaker disclosures and amazing show notes are available on the episode show page. If you find the show helpful, please do help others find the show by rating and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast app. Before we dive into this extraordinary case, I am thrilled to tell you all about a brand new project called the CardioNerds Clinical Trials Network, created with a mission to pair equitable trial enrollment with trainee personal and professional development. We have so far recruited 15 incredible CardioNerds fit trialists with PI mentors from across both America and Canada to support enrollment for Paraglide HF with mentorship from lead principal investigator, Dr. Robert Mentz. Our extraordinary Cardiners Fit trialists were nominated by side PIs for their accomplishments, academic inclinations, and of course, their nerdiness. And I'm so proud to welcome my good friend and co-fellow, Dr. Jeremy Brooksbank, who was nominated unanimously by Drs. Randall Starling and Emmanuel Finette to represent the Cleveland Clinic for this trial. Jeremy, welcome to the Cardiners family. Would you please introduce yourself and share what you're most excited about as a Fit trialist? Well, thanks so much for having me. My name is Jeremy Brooksbank, and I'm a current second-year cardiology fellow here at Cleveland Clinic. Um, I was born and raised in Tennessee, went to residency at Duke, and am planning to pursue a career in advanced heart failure and transplant, with a particular interest mostly in temporary and durable mechanical circulatory support. The FIT Trialist program is just a brilliant idea to meld fellowship training with the world of clinical trials, something that is really needed out there. This mutually beneficial partnership, I think, will allow me to sort of gaze within the black box of clinical trial design and recruitment and to learn from amazing mentors and leaders in cardiology. I have the good fortune to work with Dr. Starling in clinic and have learned so much from him in the care of patients with advanced heart failure. Now, being able to supplement that with learning from other visionaries in the Paraglide HF Steering Committee, site PIs, and other fellow trainees, uh, we can help trial enrollment and enhance collaboration in ways to benefit our patients. Immense credit to you, Amit, to, to Dan and everyone at CardioNerds for, for starting yet another amazing program to benefit both cardiovascular education and clinical investigation. Wow, Jeremy, when it comes to describing the vision for this program, you hit the nail on the head, and I certainly couldn't have described it better myself. I think 
the, the upcoming few weeks and months will come to teach us a lot about what role fellows might have in making trial enrollment more efficient and also just what are the challenges patients are facing in discussions with them at the bedside. So I just I couldn't be more excited and, and, and eternally grateful to the trial leadership for taking a chance with this project and taking a chance on us fellows. But, you know, Jeremy, um, all things said, I've, I've recently learned that you're a man of many talents. Someone recently shared a very impressive video of your singing. Now, I knew you were brilliant, but I had no idea that you were so talented and artistically inclined. How did you get into singing? Oh, no. Oh, goodness. Well, I can't believe you found a video of me singing, first and foremost. But music has always been really important to me. Um, I, I had a teacher early on in life that introduced me to playing the piano. He encouraged me to join choir and eventually play the, the lead in a musical toward the end of high school. Uh, in college, I enrolled in a vocal performance course and was so fortunate that one of the faculty sort of took me under his wing and helped train me over the next few years. I was blessed to work with incredible musicians and, and they really challenged me and further instilled my passion for classical music. Nowadays, with busy schedule and fellowship, I don't always have as much time to embrace this part of who I am, but I look forward to, to singing more in the future. Well, I was certainly blown away by your singing and, and just have to share that with our Cardiners audience here both to celebrate your success and to remind all of us of the importance of developing ourselves in all the domains that matter to us. So for everyone, join us in enjoying Jeremy's vocal talents in a piece called Hannes Angelicus. Jeremy, did I get that right? You're smiling. Well, I, I uh, appreciate the, the effort there, but no, it's actually uh, Panis Angelicus. It's, uh, it's Latin for bread of angels. Oh, wonderful. Well, on that incredible note, Jeremy, thank you so much for your work as a fit trialist and really excited for the value that you will bring to the whole group. Well, thanks again for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be part of this initial group of fit trialists and excited to see how this partnership works to benefit our patients and inform clinical practice. Hello, Cardionerds. We are so excited for this case discussion. As for the very first time, we are in Manhattan, New York. So really excited to welcome our colleagues from Cornell University, Dr. Jaya Kanduri, Dr. Dan Liu, and Dr. Joe Wang. Hey, guys. So happy to be here. I'm Jaya. I'm one of the first year fellows here at Cornell. I am thinking about going into interventional cardiology, but 
we'll see what happens. And hobbies include exploring the amazingness of New York City, as you guys mentioned, such as running along East River and going to Central Park, eating out, just doing everything possible in the city. Hey everyone, my name is Dan. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting us. I am a GY7 this year in Advanced Heart Failure Transplant. I did a general fellowship and a heart failure fellowship here at Cornell, so it's been a great experience. I have been living in New York close to that same time, last four years. It's been great. My hobbies are enjoy playing basketball post COVID, not as much. And like Jay mentioned, I like to explore the city as much as possible, like whenever I can. Hey everyone, I'm Joe. I'm very excited to be here. I am in my third year of General Cardiology Fellowship, and I'll be staying here for the additional year for the do interventional cardiology. In my limited spare time, uh, I do enjoy spending time with my wife and my almost one-year-old daughter. Uh, she has lots and lots of fun. So cute. Oh my gosh, that is awesome. Jaya, Dan, Joe, this is so exciting. And on a personal note, I've lived in Queens for three years in my life. And uh, I was always jealous to not be a Manhattanite, and I would always come in and pay that bridge, tunnel, toll, whatever, just to hang out. And this is one of my favorite times of year. Sun is out, spring is there, Central Park is awake, and uh, the traffic is loud. We are so excited to be joining you in New York, as Ahmed said. So take us to your favorite chill spot in Manhattan. I'm sure there are many. And let's talk about some serious, amazing cardiology. Just like you mentioned, Central Park is popping these days. So why don't we head there? and hang out in Sheep's Meadow. I'm down for some Levine today. Yeah, okay. That sounds good. Great cooking some Levine. Let's do it. <laughs> Amazing. You guys, that sounds like music to my ears, but music playing at normal speed, not uh, slow paper speed like uh, we do sometimes when we're doing an aortic pullback. <laughs> so with that, uh, let's dive in. Let's talk about your case. Well, let's begin our case. This is a 24-year-old female with a past medical history of a unicuspid aortic valve, status post-mechanical aortic valve replacement, and ventral procedure at the age of 16, a bovine aortic arch, traumatic brain injury complicated by small temporal intracranial and subarachnoid hemorrhage at the age of 18, seizure disorder, depression, and current smoking, who is presenting with acute onset substernal chest pain and shortness of breath for one day. Whoa, 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 okay, yeah, let's back up here for a minute. Can we dissect that one-liner for a second? A unicuspid aortic valve? Great question, Joe. Yes, unicuspid aortic valves are pretty rare, with case series suggesting only an incidence of 0.02%. But of the ones that we know, there are two flavors. We have the acomagural unicuspid aortic valve, which is associated with a single cusp and a stenotic central orifice with rudimentary commissures that don't divide the valve. Usually, this is pinhole in shape and accompanied by severe stenosis and is one of the main causes of aortic valve stenosis in early childhood. The other flavor of unicuspids is the unicommissural unicuspid aortic valve, which is composed of a single cusp with a single commissural attachment to the aortic wall and an elongate orifice. This has a less aggressive course and is generally discovered later in adulthood. In general, some series suggest that there is possibly a familial inheritance to uh, unicuspid aortic valves, and the predominance is more male to female with a ratio of around 4 to 1. 4 to 6% of patients undergoing surgery for aortic stenosis will be found to have unicuspid aortic valve at the time of operation just because it's quite difficult to discern unicuspid from bicuspids with just TEE or TTE. 
aortic stenosis is pretty universal among patients with unicuspids uh, and usually also accompanied with a uric regurgitation. And mean presentation in terms of age can be about 10 to 20 years earlier than bicuspids. Most common presenting symptoms are dyspnea, angina, dizziness, and syncope, pretty similar to what you might expect from uh, bicuspids coming in with aortic stenosis. And 14% of cases based on series show that they have concurrent aerotopathy with dilation or aneurysm of the aorta. And then unicuspids, interestingly, are associated with congenital abnormalities like anomalous coronary arteries, PDAs, BSDs, and even coarctation. Jay, are you send a bentol procedure as well? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Dan, let's talk about the bentol. Bentol involves the replacement of the native ascending aorta, aortic root, and the aortic valve. This requires reimplantation of the coronary arteries to a neo-aorta. The original bentol that was done used to involve directly suturing the coronary ostia to the graft. Unfortunately, this led to a lot of bleeding and pseudoaneurysms from excessive wall tension and tearing. So uh, a new iteration came about, which was called the Cabral procedure, which involved a prosthetic conduit, which was anastomosed end-to-end with the coronary ostia and then implanted into the aortic graft. This method also had some complications, including early post-op death from dissections, anastomotic leaks, coronary graft insufficiency from kinking, as well as graft thrombosis and endocarditis. So because of these issues with the original bentol and the cabral, we now have our newest iteration, which is the modified bentol. And this involves mobilizing the coronary ostia with a button of the native aortic wall, which is then sutured to uh, the graft of the neo-aorta. This procedure has been found to have overall better outcomes with the modified bentol with overall compared to the original bentol, the cabral, but 10-year incidence of complications is still around 27% in some reported series. And these complications will involve mechanical valve malfunctioning over time due to degeneration of the leaflets or potential panis or thrombus formation. And other rare but possible complications include endocarditis, pseudoaneurysms at the anastomosis site, coronary osteostenosis, coronary artery dissection, as well as native aortic dissection. Chaya, thanks. That was a great overview of the bentol procedure utilizing a mechanical aortic valve. You know, our surgical colleagues have so many tricks up their sleeves and can modify their approach to personalize it specific to where the pathology is. If it's just the ascending aorta, aortic root, they can just reconstruct the aortic root without touching the valve. If it's just a valvular problem, then they can do aortic valve repair or replacement depending on the particular pathology that the patient has. If it's a root and a valve problem, then, you know, they do the potentially the bentol procedure. And she had this when she was 16 years of age. But now that she is a woman of childbearing age, you know, just important to realize that they can also potentially do a biobentol where the prosthetic valve that's reimplanted with the new novel uh, neoaortic root is a bioprosthetic valve. And then, you know, if it's just a root pathology, they can also do the David procedure where they replace the root and then reimplant the patient's own native valve. Now, you know, again, depending on where the pathology is. So there are a lot of options and it really is so complicated to figure out where is the pathology and what are the specific situations for the patient, you know, including thinking about a desire for pregnancy and whatnot down the road. Thanks, Amit. Those are really important points. Uh, so just to round out our patient's history, went through her past medical and past surgical history. Medication-wise, she's taking aripiprazole, iron, folic acid, lamotrigine, trazodone, and warfarin in the setting of her mechanical aortic valve. She has no allergies that we know of. 
family history-wise, she has her mom who has some history of heart disease, but unclear etiology, uh, as well as seizures. Her father has high uh, cholesterol, and maternal grandmother also had heart disease of unknown etiology. Social history, the patient is married. She smokes five cigarettes a day, and uh, she also engages in social drinking and daily marijuana use. Chaya, thanks for going over the patient's history, and that really helps contextualize the, you know, like everything this patient is at risk for, right? Thinking about her comorbidities and her medication exposures, and uh, particularly her uh, social exposures in terms of her cardiovascular risk. One thing I learned to start doing with uh, my women patients is to start getting an obstetric history. You know, has she been pregnant in the past? What her pregnancy outcomes are have been, and really, particularly for her, that can help us get into her family planning situation, and if she's thinking about having a child. And that's so important because she has a mechanical uretic valve, and she's on a pretty high dose of warfarin, the alternating 7 milligrams and 8 milligrams. And so we remember from our episode with Dr. Katie Burlacher on pregnancy and anticoagulation that above 5 milligrams, you know, the risk for teratogenicity really probably outweighs the risk for valve thrombosis. And so we'd want to either help our patient with contraception or think about how to counsel her in that way to help preempt that risk, just as a woman of childbearing age in her mid-20s. Thanks, Amit. That's really important to bring up just because, you know, it's not as common for us to see young females with mechanical aortic valves on warfarin. It is really important that we take into account pregnancy, planning, and contraception. Jaya, that's an excellent point. And, you know, when taking a history and physical on patients like this, especially in the context of somebody who's coming in with a day of shortness of breath, she had developed enough shortness of breath in one day that she gave that time period and then came into the emergency room with an aortic valve that's mechanical, obviously risk for thrombosis and things to occur to that valve to cause this presentation, we definitely would want to delve into her medication history, particularly her compliance with warfarin or her ability to take warfarin regularly. And, you know, obviously you'll probably tell us her INR in this particular context. So very useful to get this history on this patient. Yes. Yeah. And that's something we're going to get into in a little bit too. Thanks, Jaya, for going through her, her history. But wow, that is quite a lot of things for just a 24-year-old to have. You know, this must make the differential for her chest pain and her shortness of breath uh, much more complicated. Agreed, Joe. I think there's a lot of other things we have to think about, just given what we know about our patient's history. Chest pain syndrome and, you know, a nor- normal, quote, quote, normal cardiac substrate for us, we, you know, we always think about atherosclerotic risk factors. And given her substrate being so young, I think we have to think about other things. So with unicuspid aortic valve, as we spoke about, there is this associated anomalous coronary artery phenomenon. And so there's a potential for malignant features such as acute angle takeoff or slit-like orifice, interarterial cores, if she was to have an anomalous coronary, which could potentially predispose her to a chest pain syndrome and ischemia. However, important to know here that this patient had a bentol, so she already had coronary reimplantation. So it's unlikely for her to have a significant anomalous coronary. But she had a bentol, so this actually puts her at risk for coronary osteostenosis. So from the anastomosis site of the native aortic button sewed on to the prosthetic graft, there is a chance for that area of the anastomotic site to become stenotic and predispose to chest pain and ischemia over time. Another important consideration is the fact that she could have an aortic dissection. In the setting of having a prior bentol procedure, and given that she had aortopathy in the past, she could potentially have recurrent aortopathy with dissection distal to the, the bentol graft. And we know from, actually, this was not 
attained on the initial history, but we did know later on that the patient may have been taking substances such as cocaine, and that can obviously predispose to coronary basal spasm and chest pain. So that was also something that we were thinking about. And lastly, given the patient's history of a mechanical valve, there's always concern that obstruction of the valve can cause uh, left ventricular tract obstruction and or valvular insufficiency, both of which can result in ischemia. And potential etiologies for obstruction of the valve could be thrombus or vegetation. Yeah, and those are all great things to consider in differential diagnosis for someone with a complicated history, as complicated history as she has. But, you know, always just always just want to think about some of the other more common things as well. Anyone coming in with this acute onset shortness of breath, chest pain, in addition to the coronary and aortic pathology you mentioned, other things like myocarditis, stress cardiomyopathy leading to shock, things like tamponade, tachyarrhythmias, uh, and then everything pulmonary, uh, pneumonia, PE, you know, we're in the, still in the period of COVID, uh, that's also a differential. So uh, a lot of the more common things are all in play here, uh, even with someone who's having issues. Guys, I just want to say that was absolutely masterful. You know, thinking about expert clinical reasoning, we always go back to our problem representation or that one-liner that answers the three questions, who is our patient, you know, along with the comorbidities, what is their clinical syndrome, and what is the temporality and the duration of her symptoms? And you took all that together, you know, with her age, her sex, the duration of her symptoms, and her comorbidities, and you devised a differential diagnosis very specific to her context. But then you said, you know, but beyond that, I don't want to miss the common things. For dyspnea, we can think about pulmonary problems. You know, she's a smoker and she's been hospitalized in the past. And we can think about hematologic problems. She's getting iron repletion. You know, maybe she has anemia as well. But you didn't just leave it there. You said, okay, but specific to her, these are the things I'm worried about. And that's going to guide the rest of my evaluation in a hypothesis-driven way. So just kudos to you guys. I, I love that. Thanks, Amit. So now we're going to move in to our physical exam findings. So... On first presentation, vitals were notable for a blood pressure of 96 over 72 with a heart rate of 138, a respiratory rate of 22, and an oxygen saturation of 88% on room air. So just given these vitals, you know, definitely concerned about hypotension, tachycardia, as well as hypoxia. We know that the SAT did improve after she was placed on BiPAP. Other notable findings on her physical exam included crackles and wheezing in her bilateral uh, lower lung fields, and she also appeared visibly tachypnic. Her extremities were cool, but she did not have any pedal edema. And of note, she did not have a murmur on her cardiac auscultation. She didn't have any obvious JVD or stigmata of endocarditis, and she did have equal pulses in the upper and lower extremities on presentation. And no focal neurological deficit at the time. She was AOE times three. So given these findings with hypotension, tachycardia, hypoxia, crackles on lung exam with cool extremities, I think we were pretty worried about shock and that to a potential cardiogenic etiology of shock based on her uh, initial presentation. And just quickly going over some of her notable labs on presentation, she had an elevated white count to 23 without a left shift. She also had global creatinine, normal LFTs, and she did have an elevated pro-BNP to 24,500. Her troponin I was 0.183, her lactate was 4.9, and an ABG was 7.3, 51, 57. Of note, just as Dan mentioned, 
with our concern about corporate compliance, she did have quite a subtherapeutic INR to 1.28. One thing to note here is given, uh, even in the setting of an elevated lactate, all making us think that there's potentially some concern here for issues with end organ perfusion, she did have normal creatinine and LFTs potentially pointing to acuity of whatever was going on. Those are great points, Jay. But I just want to point out one more thing. You know, we do expect what we someone comes in with evidence of shock with hypotension, tachycardia, elevated lactate. We do expect to see Marcus and Northern uh, hypoperfusion. But just one thing to point out, this lady is very young, she's 24 years old. The young people can often hide uh, that very well. They can do better in terms of their peripheral vasoconstriction. They can track oxygen better. They may not manifest as, uh, as quickly some of the end organ dysfunction as you might see in an older patient. They're compensating a little bit more for the hypoperfusion in other ways. That's a great point. And I, it's just, let's emphasize it again. You know, they may look better than they actually are as well. And that might be reflected in the labs, as you said. So I, I think that's just a wonderful point to re-emphasize over and over. And the more you practice, the more you see this happen and the more concerned you get when you start noticing evidence of hyperperfusion, even though it's not manifested in the labs as much as you would have expected in patients that are further along in age and also in their comorbidities. So great point. Yeah, you know, and the fact that she's so young and she's coming in already looking and feeling so ill with an elevated lactate and all these other red flags, you know, you, you have to be very concerned and jump on this. Jaya, wh where did you initially triage her as you're trying to stabilize her and get your initial workup? So at this point, actually, the patient was in an outside hospital and perhaps to them, they recognized how sick she appeared and how concerning some of her uh, features were and they immediately triaged her to the CCU. Some other things they did were the initial EKG, which was notable for sinus tachycardia. The rate was in the one teens. She did present with diffuse ST depressions with an AVR elevation. So there was definitely some concern for subendocardial diffuse kind of ischemia going on. Uh, we got a chest x-ray that showed patchy congestion bilaterally with cephalization concerning for pulmonary edema. There were no obvious consolidations or fusions. Other notable findings include sternal wires from her prior operation. We can actually see the mechanical aortic valve, and you also see a, a loop recorder sitting there, So, which we found out that her outpatient cardiologist at one point was trying to investigate palpitations and had a loop recorder placed. But as far as the last interrogation, there were no concerning arrhythmias. So then what happened next? Yeah, so Joe, as we're seeing now, things are seeming very concerning. And so while the patient was in the CCU, she was diuresed, given the concern for pulmonary edema and potential cardiogenic shock. And she was also started on heparin, just given that super subtherapeutic INR and setting up for having the mechanical aortic valve. Unfortunately, she started to decompensate with worsening respiratory distress and hypoxia on BiPAP. And so she had to be intubated. She was also sent for a, a CTA of her chest to investigate for PE, which as we spoke about, was still on our differential at one point. And then she had an echo, which we would all, I'm sure, love to see at this point. Joe, do you mind taking us through what we saw on her echo? You know, given everything that's been going on, it's definitely important at this point to get an echocardiogram. Thinking about some of the things that we've been considering, we certainly would want to look for wall motion abnormalities. And given her mechanical aortic valve with a sub-therapeutic uh, INR, that's definitely important to investigate further at this point. And so 
Looking at her echocardiogram, we first see that she had a severely reduced left ventricular systolic function with an estimated ejection fraction about 25 to 30%. We do actually appreciate uh, some wall motion abnormalities in the mid to distal anteroseptum, the inferoseptum, the anterior wall, as well as the apex, which appears pretty severely hypokinetic. Interestingly, the ventricle actually does not look particularly dilated. The LV and diastolic diameter end up measuring about four centimeters. And the left atrium also was normal in size. So this speaks to the acuity of the process at this point. Looking at the mechanical valve, we do see that there is a mechanical prosthesis and there's actually a moderate to severe aortic regurgitation. It's hard to tell on the echocardiogram whether the valve, the disc is opening properly. A lot of times on a transthoracic echo, you can have a lot of acoustic shadowing and reverberation artifacts that can obscure your view. But certainly with this amount of regurgitation, it's definitely concerning. One thing, you know, going back to your physical exam, Jaya, that you had mentioned, you know, we didn't really hear much of a murmur on her exam. And that's an important point because, you know, part of it, you know, maybe this is just because uh, of how tachycardic she was, that maybe it's just hard to hear with her going so fast. But if this is, you know, severe acute aortic regurgitation, a lot of times you may not hear a uh, clear murmur because of the rapid equalization of pressures uh, between the aorta and VLV. So that gradient is not as uh, present. Yeah, that was a great point. And essentially what you're saying is that LV that is, is not used to the sudden burst of aortic regurgitant flow. And so it hasn't had time to become compliant and dilate and absorb that extra fluid. And so as soon as you start getting AI, the, you know, that small amount of volume increases the pressure dramatically. You get rapid equalization and the flow halts very quickly. And so on the exam, you may not hear the murmur, but the echo equivalent is you may underestimate it on 2D color flow because just as the murmur may be attenuated, the flow velocities may be attenuated also. And so this can be difficult to diagnose and having that index of suspicion is so important there. And this is something that we've also talked about on the show with regards to acute mitral regurgitation. We brought up a case where a patient had acute mitral regurgitation due to an acute MI. And while we were sorting out why the patient was in acute cardiogenic shock with a crazy presentation, really low blood pressure, not responsive to any medications with pulmonary edema shooting out of the ET tube, we were looking at the echo and we definitely saw that something was wrong with the mitral valve, but we could not document any like a Doppler evidence of mitral regurgitation. And color flow was actually really barely visible, which made the, the diagnosis quite confusing until somebody came along and pointed out that this would be the case if we're dealing with acute mitral regurgitation. So don't let that stall your, your path to diagnosis and that recognition that early regurgitation of aortic valve and the mitral valve may not have that manifestation of the murmur that you would have expected with the same lesion, but chronic. And these are such important points. And, and one clue here, you know, I'm trying to pause the 2D color map here in end diastole, and I do see diastolic mitral regurgitation. And so it just tells you that the LVEDP is so high, this probably is pretty severe AR. And that might also explain that diffuse ST depressions with AVR elevation because of the LVEDP is so high, you have decreased drive for coronary blood flow. And so this could definitely be an ischemic ventricle purely because of acute severe AR. You know, we've got this patient with a mechanical aortic valve who's coming to us in cardiogenic shock and decompensated heart failure, likely in the context of acute prosthetic mechanical aortic valve dysfunction with regurgitation. Jaya, what did you guys do? Because uh, this is very alarming here. Thanks, guys, for all that input. I think Joe is going to let us know a, a little bit more information about the uh, mechanical valve. 
On the Echo, we also did uh, look at the continuous wave Doppler, and we saw that the mean gradient was about 45 millimeters of mercury, which was uh, certainly concerning for stenosis of the valve. Yeah, Joe, we know that in, in a normal aortic valve, we take a mean gradient about 40, and the aortic valve area of 1 by the continuity equation, it needs severe stenosis. But do you want to tell us a little bit about how that changes with the prosthetic valve? Absolutely. So similar to native valve stenosis, we could use the peak velocity of mean gradient. A peak velocity greater than 4 meters per second and a mean gradient of over 35 to 40 millimeters of mercury is suggestive of significant stenosis. However, a limitation of that is that these measures uh, can depend on flow conditions. And so, fortunately, there are other features and parameters that we can use to assess stenosis. So in a non-obstructed prosthetic valve, the Doppler velocity recording uh, generally resembles that of a mild native aortic stenosis with sort of a triangular shape and early peak in the velocity. And as stenosis increases, the contour of the Doppler signal will be a little bit more rounded rather than triangular. The peak will be later, uh, so almost mid-ejection. So to quantify this change, we can use the acceleration time, which is basically just the time from the uh, onset of flow to the maximum velocity. And significant obstruction is uh, typically uh, an acceleration time of over 100 milliseconds. So another useful parameter is the Doppler velocity signal, or DVI, which is basically a dimensionless ratio of the velocity proximal to the valve divided by the velocity through the valve. So a Doppler velocity index of less than 0.25 is highly suggestive of significant valve obstruction. And so one of the benefits of using this type of index is that it's not really dependent on flow, and it's not really reliant on the measurement of the left ventricular outflow track, which oftentimes, as we know, can be a significant source of error and uh, may not be easily measurable in technically difficult studies. However, if it is measurable, we can also calculate the effective orifice area using the continuity equation, just as we would for the native valve stenosis. Thanks, Joe. That was great. Other than the actual measurements of gradients, refresh my memory in what other ways prosthetic valve assessment is different from normal valves. You know, as you would expect, the effective orifice area, along with the, the peak and mean gradients, they are dependent on the size of the implanted valve. And generally, you should reference that to a particular valve type and size. So there are charts available, including in the 2016 valve guidelines. But in general, you can think of an effective orifice area of less than 0.8 centimeters squared as consistent with significant stenosis, regardless of the type of uh, valve that's been implanted. Looking at our patient, now our patient had a 25 millimeter St. Jude mechanical bilingual valve placed. And so when you, if you actually scan through the guidelines, uh, sort of a baseline mean gradient and a peak gradient of about 18 millimeters mercury is expected after an implant. And so going through her history, immediately post-op, her mean gradient was around 4.8. And two years later, it was about six, four years later, around 13, and then six years later, around 22. So there is some suggestion that there is some progression of stenosis already, maybe a potential panis. And again, just to review, at the time of her presentation this time, her meat rating was already 45 millimeters mercury. And so just to go through the other parameters that we discussed in the evaluating prosthetic valve stenosis, the velocity was actually 4.1 meters per second. The DVI, or the Doppler velocity index, was 0.15, which again, it's indicative of potentially significant stenosis. And then the uh, acceleration time was uh, certainly well over 100 milliseconds in her case is definitely a suggestion of severe prosthetic valve stenosis. Thanks, Joe, for all that information. Joe, that was a phenomenal overview. 
specific to uh, evaluating prosthetic valves, I think two issues that are probably relevant for her. One is of high flow. The reason she may have high flow is she has an elevated white blood cell count. And so is she infected with a SERS response and a low SVR, causing a high cardiac output and resulting in a high velocity, high gradients in the absence of prosthetic valve dysfunction. And of course, there are other causes of high flow like hyperthyroidism, obesity, etc. The, the second issue is, could she have patient prosthesis mismatch? And one reason that she may potentially be at risk for that is that the valve was implanted when she was younger and presumably smaller in an adolescence, and she could have potentially just outgrown the valve. But the parameters that really help here are that DVI, which tends to be in the normal range with these issues, and uh, the contour of the continuous wave Doppler across the aortic valve, right? Because the contour for high flow and patient prosthesis mismatch would still be that of a normal trans aortic valve flow with a triangular shape, early peaking contour with acceleration time less than 100 milliseconds. But her DI or DVI being low at 0.15 and her aortic valve contour being parabolic or rounded with the acceleration time over 100, taking time to reach its peak because it's got to get through this you know, stenotic valve, does suggest that there is true prosthetic valve dysfunction and stenosis as opposed to uh, high flow or patient prosthesis mismatch. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. Just one thing to add, and let's not forget on the echo, we did actually see that she's pretty significant with vegetation as well, which does actually can also increase the gradients as well. So she's, you know, among all those things that you mentioned, she's coming in with both prosthetic stenosis and with vegetation and potentially might have some of these other things going on as well. And I just add that, you know, this could be very confusing at first, but two things. One is there are apps that help you predict the uh, degree of gradients that you're supposed to be expecting with these valves. So something, you know, there's apps like a cardio valve, which you can find in the app store of your various choosing. And then the other thing is that the algorithm that's displayed in the paper from Abbas 2016 really has with a peak valve stenosis, you know, with that jet velocity of over three meters per second. And then this kind of diagnostic algorithm using the DVI and the jet contour to figure out what's going on is very helpful when you actually see it. And so we'll have that in the show notes as a reference for your viewing. Definitely don't look at it while you're in the car. This is definitely not one of those things that you want to do when you're driving, but, but feel free to check that out on the episode blog. Amazing. Thanks, everyone. So now that we've looked at her echo, did we also evaluate her coronaries? And just to go back, we had an echo with a reduced EF with valvular dysfunction, but there was also some segmental wall motion abnormalities, and she did have an elevation of the troponin. So we thought it was definitely prudent that she had a coronary evaluation. Joe, do you want to take us through that? Definitely. To round out her evaluation here, at this point, coronary angiography was performed. So... Uh, on angiography, we don't see any significant stenosis at the left coronary ostium, and this is important again because of her history of having the ventral procedure. We want to make sure the site of the implantation of her coronary uh, it looks okay, and everything looks clean there. Same thing with her right coronary artery. Uh, the ostium looks fine, and uh, there's no significant disease anywhere along the vessels. But one of the other useful things that we can see when we use fluoroscopy is we can assess for leaflet motion of her prosthetic valve, and we actually don't really see much motion. You can actually see, if you look closely, the leaflet does not move at all. And so when we performed an aortogram, whopping amounts of contrast refluxed back into the left ventricle. And you know, our suspicion at this point was that, you know, could there be thrombus that's occluding closure of the valve itself? And we'll try to have some of these images available on show notes for you guys to take a look. So we had this lady coming in with shock, reduced DF, and now uh, dysfunction. That's been pretty clear. Uh, but she went to the cath lab. Hopefully, they're working dynamics as well. 
definitely. We wouldn't be doing her justice if we didn't do the right heart cath as well. So going through her numbers, her right atrium was eight. Her right ventricle was 40 over two. Her pulmonary artery pressure was 40 over 23 with a mean of 29. Her wet pressure was 22. And uh, her arterial side was 97% with a mixed venous of 32%. That gave a uh, thick cardiac output an index of 1.68 and 1.1. Her calculated systemic vascular resistance was almost 2,800 and a vascular resistance of four woods units. And we do also note that during her catheterization, she did have quite a wide pulse pressure. Uh, her blood pressure was 89 over 41. And again, this is consistent with significant aortic insufficiency. And as uh, you guys had mentioned, you know, we were concerned that given her whopping aortic insufficiency, that she would have loss of uh, coronary perfusion pressure, which would be, which could result in subendocardial ischemia that we saw in her electrocardiogram. Wow. That all sounds pretty suboptimal. What happens after that? Suboptimal is like the understatement of a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> On the, on the scale of severity of cardiogenic shock with a mixed venous oxygen saturation of 32 and a cardiac index of 1.1, we're in a heap of trouble, guys. Uh, I'm so glad she's under your care, but what did you guys do to take care of this poor woman? So at this point in time, the shock team was activated and following a multidisciplinary discussion with the advanced heart failure team, the cardiothoracic surgeons, and anesthesia, the decision was made to bring the patient to the OR for an acute intervention of her aortic valve. But while she was waiting in the cap lab to go to the OR, she had escalating press requirements and unfortunately had multiple episodes of PA arrest uh, requiring sequential rounds of cardiopulmonary resuscitation at this point. Wow, Joe, that sounds really bad. We now have this patient in florid cardiogenic shock with torrential AI and now going into refractory cardiac arrest. Sounds like we really need to think about escalating care at this point. Dan, what happened next? When someone is crash inverting in front of your eyes, there are limited things you can do. But I think obviously we can all agree that at this point, just, you know, adding on pressors and iotropes is not going to do anything. We're going to have to support her in some ways. And just, you know, I, I know the mechanical support has been a, a topic of the podcast many times in the past. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but several of the things that you can think about in terms of mechanical support the balloon pump, the impella, the tandem heart, or even going straight to ECMO are all considerations. Just to go over a little bit as it relates to this patient, obviously, as you all know, the balloon pump can give a little bit of extra cardiac output, can absolutely reduce coronaries. The impella can give a little bit more, somewhere between three to four liters of flow, maybe even five liters, depending on what kind of impella you use. The problem with all of these mechanical support devices in her is that Given the severe aortic regurgitation, it makes all of these uh, devices suboptimal. Especially with the balloon pump, really hard to use a balloon pump with uh, uh, severe aortic regurgitation. Impella is going to be problematic because you would have to cross the aortic valve, which is stenotic and regurgitating. And then even tandem and the VA ECMO, you're going to run into problems with the regurgitation because a lot of your forward flow that you're putting into the arterial circulation may just go backwards. So not a lot of things that you can use very well in this situation. So the decision in her particular case was that she needed an urgent surgery and the plan was to take her to the OR. She was cannulated for uh, emergent peripheral VA ECMO just to stabilize her enough temporarily to allow her to transport to the OR, the bridge to fix the aortic regurgitation in your stenosis. 
Yeah, seems like quite the cache 22. You went through the different types of configurations for mechanical circulatory support and you've isolated. The problem here really is the aortic valve. It's not so much her lungs or the right heart or you know, the LV is weak, but you really need to support the systemic flow and you've outlined the, the essentially the relative or absolute contraindications for each of these support devices that this patient has in terms of the balloon pump, the impeller device, the tandem heart, and the VA ECMO. You know, I'm sure that this was an easy decision to make because of the contraindications, but the team did the best you guys could to save her life. And I imagine this was a decision made in concert with the entire shock team, weighing all the pros and cons of the different approaches. Yes, definitely. So just to recap our patient's course up until now, we have our 24-year-old female with a history of unicuspid aortic valves that is post-mechanical aortic valve replacement and ventral procedure and presented with acute onset substantial chest pain and shortness of breath, found to be in cardiogenic shock, secondary to acute mechanical valve obstruction resulting in severe aortic insufficiency. Her course was also complicated by refractory cardiac arrest necessitating VA echo cannulation as a bridge to the OR. So at this point in time, the etiology of the acute mechanical valve obstruction is unclear, but we're hoping that taking her to the OR and actually seeing what's on the valve would really clarify things, as differential at this point could include panis, thrombus, thrombus on panis, or even endocarditis, especially knowing that she did come in with that elevated white count. However, her hemodynamics don't really suggest a low SVR state and support more of a cardiogenic picture. But once we did go to the OR, it was definitely became clear that what they were seeing with the valve was thrombus and not a vegetation. And the surgeons, when they were in the the room, actually decided to proceed with valve debridement rather than full-on aortic valve replacement due to the fact that she had a Bentol procedure. There's a very high risk of intervening on prior Bentol anatomy, especially in a very acute setting, uh, such as this patient who's now on VA ECMO for mechanical support. So it was decided to debride rather than replace. Just to briefly review her TEE before intervention, the EF was less than 10%, and they saw, again, the severe aortic insufficiency with the valve stuck in the open position. So that's essentially thrombus, which was keeping the valve leaflets open. So there's some degree of stenosis from the thrombus being there in the first place, as well as torrential AI from the valve leaflets not opening and closing appropriately. And once they debrided, the post-op TEE did show that the EF was still low, less than 10%, but the aortic valve was now opening very well and there was no aortic regurgitation. Jay, that's a, a great course, and you know, sounds like everything that needed to happen happened. May I ask, if the suspicion for valve thrombosis was so high in the beginning, especially when she was acutely ill, and the choice of MCS was complicated by the presence of aortic regurgitation, would systemic TPA have been considered? Oh, actually, I guess she had intraparenchymal hemorrhage, right? So that would have been a contraindication. That, that's a great question, Ahmed. Let me go through how we address prosthetic valve thrombosis because it is something that we don't see that often. Certainly in somebody who's coming in and there's suspicion for, for thrombosis and they have symptoms that suggest obstruction, it can be an urgent issue. In general, the approaches that we take is, does this person need emergency go to surgery or can we actually consider systemic fibrinolytic therapy? So there are a number of things that we think about when we are approaching that the patient in front of us. So certainly, if you are considering surgery, you do need to have the available expertise at your site. But, you know, for somebody who is high surgical risk, you may consider using fibrinolysis. But as in our patient, 
Now, sometimes patients do have contraindications to fibrinolysis. So if they have any active bleeding, if they had a history of prior intracranial hemorrhage, as in our patient, unfortunately, it is uh, a contraindication. And certainly being on ECMO is not ideal either. Uh, you know, other times that you may consider it, though, is if this is a first-time thrombosis and they don't have any significant symptoms, you may be able to get away with using fibrinolytics if the patient is stable enough. But in a patient who's unstable, uh, it's really not going to be effective. A couple other things to think about, if they have a concomitant coronary artery disease that needs to be revascularized, if there's any other valve issues that need to be addressed. And, you know, certainly if we think there you know, could be panis as well, not just thrombus on the valve, thrombolytics wouldn't address that problem. For, you know, all the, the number of things that I had just mentioned, it seems, uh, you know, given that our patient is critically ill, it made more sense to go straight to surgery and not even consider thrombolytics in her situation. That makes perfect sense, Joe. Thank you. So just to round out the recent guidelines in dealing with uh, prosthetic valve regurgitation as well. So in patients with intractable hemolysis or heart failure due to prosthetic valve regurgitation, surgery is definitely the approach to take. And in our patient who was in severe heart failure and cardiogenic shock, again, the decision was pretty clear for us at this point. And just as how it applies to this patient, I know prior podcasts that you guys have talked about complications. So I'll just quickly review some of them and how it kind of pertains to her. Some of the major complications with ECMO obviously are bleeding of any kind in the cranial, elsewhere when they're on uh, anticoagulation, limb ischemia and vascular complications, limb injury from the initial surgery itself, and then obviously infectious complications as well. The important things for her is that unfortunately she did suffer several complications on the heparin for both the valve and for ECMO. Uh, she did have uh, bleeding. She had bleeding from her chest tubes and actually required to go back to the OBR for washouts. She actually did have a new, you know, back to your point about the bronchiolitis, she actually did have a new uh, intracranial hemorrhage as well on the anticoagulation. Now, luckily, it wasn't uh, catastrophic by any means, but it does limit what we can do with our therapies. She actually had to be on ECMO without anticoagulation for several days because of the development of intracranial hemorrhage. And then finally, low extremity ischemia is always an issue. She, I, from what I remember, actually did have this distal limb perfusion catheter. And uh, despite that, however, she did actually have some loss of repulses. And it was a concern of that ischemic limb throughout the course as well. And when we get to, you know, venting strategies for her, that actually became a significant thing because uh, as we reviewed all of her vascular access, she had four vascular access throughout. And that actually limits what kind of uh, venting procedures we can use as well. Dan, you're mentioning LB venting. How does that pertain uniquely to our patient? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's quite complex in her. In a lot of patients who are placed on VA ECMO, you actually need to place uh, what's called an LV vent. Especially in someone uh, who had a wedge of 22, we expect the LVDP to be high, as in her case, you are worried because what the peripheral ECMO circulation actually does is actually significantly increase the afterload that the heart is pumping against. So although the ECMO is good for uh, distal perfusion of the organs, what it actually does is significantly increases the afterload in the work that your LV is seeing. So oftentimes, not always, but in a, a lot of cases with VA ECMO, you often need something to unload that LV, and that's what we call an LV vent. 
you know, Dan, you make a really good point about this question of LV unloading or venting, particularly in our patient. And I'm just piggybacking off of what you said, you know, where we have elevated left ventricular and diastolic filling pressures from the get go. But now you're putting on ECMO, right? And this ECMO is going to create a higher afterload state and even more pressures in the aortic root, which we know this patient has aortic regurgitation or aortic insufficiency. And so we expect even more flow going into that left ventricle during diastole. And so we just expect that left ventricle to have higher filling pressures and higher filling pressures leading to ischemia. But given that this patient has a mechanical aortic valve, left ventricular venting or unloading might be complex. Do you want to speak more about that? Yeah, sure. Thanks. And that's, a, that's a, of course, a great point. When you think about LD venting and mechanical support devices, the things that you think about are you know, balloon pumps, impellas, tandem parts, and various forms of surgical and percutaneous direct LD vents. And that's quite complex at heart. And when we talk about LD vents, there's actually a few studies out there, like some meta-analyses, a direct comparison, looking at BA ECMO compared to LDA ECMO with balloon pump or BA ECMO with an impella. And those studies actually do suggest that LD venting and decompressing the LD on ECMO does potentially improve outcomes. Obviously, those studies are very small and retrospective in nature. Obviously, the impella you can't even do because it would be required to impella across a, a kind of aortic valve. The other options, the tandem heart, the, the percutaneous direct LD vent, we call a KVAD at our institution, they can be done, but in her case, it's a little more complex because she just had this aortic valve that was uh, debrided, that had the promise and was debrided, and she's not on anticoagulation at this time because of the intracranial hemorrhage. Putting in a direct LV vent or putting in something like a tandem heart to have the flow going some other way through another circuit and not through the aortic valve actually does increase the risk of the aortic valve not opening adequately and lead to even more thrombus formation on that valve in the absence of anticoagulation. If a balloon pump would have been possible in this case, that would have avoided all those issues. But again, a balloon pump in her, there was a lot of concern about her peripheral vasculature. I think her lower extremities, uh, there was concern about ischemia. And then I think the surgeon even looked at her axillaries as well. And she was worried that the size was very small as well. So really for her, the usual things that you think about for um, LG decompression, none of them seem to be great for her. Dan, these were all excellent points, especially taking her physiology into account when uh, thinking about mechanical support when you're venting the LB. Another unique consideration for her was given that she was bleeding and we needed to stop systemic anticoagulation, we actually had to lower her ECMO flow just because high afterload can actually prevent the mechanical valve leaflets from opening and can, like we mentioned from some of the other strategies, can result in recurrent mechanical valve thrombosis just from the high afterload state. So because of that, we did have to think about running the flow a little lower than what would typically be. Dan, what about you know, big picture for her? Now, she's on ECMO at this point, but where are we going with all this? Yeah, that's always a very important consideration because your ECMO is a bridge to something, a bridge to recovery, bridge to some other form of uh, support. In her, obviously, someone who's this sick and on ECMO, you always want to think about what possible long-term solutions they have. Now, the most common things in this case are durable LVAD or transplant because obviously she does have not just the valvular uh, disease, but also severe um, LV dysfunction at this point. And, and as we all know, the, the longer you're on VA ECMO, many, the more days on VA ECMO, the more these, uh, these complications can start to arise. Um, 
thinking if she doesn't recover in time, you have to think about kind of what are the options for her? Is she a candidate for an LBAT? Is she a transplant candidate? However, you know, obviously certain things in her clinical history make some of those things more complicated. One, the recent intraprenial bleed just makes another another major cardiac surgery like an LBAT or a transplant impossible. And then thinking a little bit more about transplant as well, you know, her recent substance use, marijuana, the cocaine, et cetera, also makes transplant a little bit tricky. None of those things were immediately on the table for her. So our only hope for her at the point was to support her and uh, support her long enough without complications so that she can actually have a recovery of her heart function after the surgical intervention. Joe, was there actually any improvement in her LV function over time? Yeah, Jaya. So two weeks post-op, our patient remains on ECMO, but thankfully her hemodynamics did start to improve. Her pulsatility looked like it was getting better. Her pressures were slowly being weaned. And on echocardiography, we saw that her LV function was uh, slowly improving a little bit. And thankfully, the mechanical valve was continuing to open despite high afterload from the circuit. And at this point in time, we did start to consider whether to consider decannulation. So we proceeded with ECMO V. Well, that sounds interesting, Joe. What exactly is an ECMO lead? It's uh, pretty straightforward. Basically, we are turning down the flow on the ECMO circuit incrementally by about uh, 0.5 to uh, 1 liter a minute. And while we're doing that, we're using echocardiography and basic hemodynamics with a swan gas catheter to monitor the patient. So as you turn down the ECMO circuit, the LV preload increases and the afterload decreases. And what we're watching for is to see you know, how the left ventricle and right ventricle are functioning, making sure the septum remains midline, not going in any particular direction. And we're monitoring her hemodynamics, assessing her pressures to make sure they remain stable as well as her cardiac output. And, you know, one of the things to uh, bear in mind is while you are doing this, and, you know, again, this is a big consideration in her situation because of her uh, mechanical valve, is that, you know, thrombosis can be increased as you are slowly decreasing the flow on the circuit. So in general, keeping the anticoagulation uh, therapeutic is important, except again, in our case, because of endocrine bleed, we're not able to keep her on anticoagulation. Thankfully, her LB contractility was also significantly improved. So even through the weed, it seems like her contractility and opening of the mechanical valve remained decent. Joe, what exactly did the turndown show? So during the turndown, her hemodynamics were overall stable, but she did have some degree of elevation in her central venous pressures. Her RV function did look a little bit more reduced, but there wasn't any significant dilatation of the right ventricle. Her left ventricle looked somewhat hyperdynamic underfilled, but because of some concern with her right ventricle, we needed to you know, consider a little bit further whether we would be able to proceed with decannulation. So we think that the mild RV dysfunction that we saw in the turndown was probably due to increased preload from the patient appearing anisarchic from all of the blood products and volume that she received over time. And we started her on CRT just to facilitate aggressive volume removal. So this, in addition to weaning down PEEP and weaning off presser, did help her RV function improve over time. And actually, a repeat turndown about a week later showed LB and RB moving well. And so we were actually able to, to wean off ECMO successfully. That's awesome. Yeah, it was definitely quite a course. And despite her going through so much, she did leave us with a lot of learning. You know, Jaya, this whole story has been incredible. We started off with a young patient who came in with signs of hypoperfusion 
And we quickly recognized that there was a big problem here. We talked about the resilience of a young patient. And here, you know, with all the care that you have invested in this patient and all the mechanical circulatory support and the surgery, we saw a patient who was on death's door really make a comeback. And with all of your multidisciplinary care and interhospital care, this patient is alive. And it's just a real testament to the great care that you and your team have provided. And obviously, we saw amazing thought process in this presentation. We can only imagine and extrapolate how much thought process went into the care for this patient. But you know, we can't forget that this patient came in with a mechanical valve. Ultimately, that was thrombosed. And we saw that there was a subtherapeutic INR. And we have a patient that's leaving the hospital with a mechanical valve again. And so we have to make sure that this cycle doesn't repeat itself. So did you have any thoughts in terms of counseling or figuring out why the patient was subtherapeutic to begin with, with regards to her warfarin and her anticoagulation plan going forward? Really excellent point, Dan definitely concerning that this happened in the first place due to something as simple sounding as taking your warfarin every day. But for a 24-year-old in the middle of a COVID pandemic, you know, that's not something that can just be taken for granted. So I I sympathize a lot with her situation, but it's just crazy how devastating the consequences can be for for someone this young with a mechanical valve. So of course, you know, I think counseling can be very important. And I think it, it was also difficult for her to have regular follow-up just being in the midst of the pandemic in New York City. So I do think that, you know, moving forward, we're hoping that she'll have pretty close communication with her cardiology team and her her adult congenital team as well in terms of making sure she's compliant and other kind of comorbidities such as drug abuse and psychiatric issues are co-managed appropriately. A case like this really puts things into perspective. It, It must be that much more difficult for a young woman of childbearing age to have to go through such incredible circumstances early in her life and now has to be maintained on daily warfarin despite everything else going on in her life. So it's definitely something really important to, to think about how difficult the situation was for her. And thankfully, she did come out of this, but important to make sure she has the support she needs moving forward. That's amazing, Chaya. You know, I just want to congratulate you and the whole team for taking such incredible care of this young patient at death's door. And you know, not just for the great skill you all had in taking care of her with a multidisciplinary heart team approach, but also the great sensitivity you had in, in taking care of her, recognizing her social circumstances that were involved, you know, especially with regards to that why she may have had the valve thrombosis in the first place. So again, congratulations to each of you. And we at Cardiorans just feel so privileged to have this opportunity to learn from Cornell Fellows. Guys, welcome to the family. So grateful for the time you took to teach us and for you guys joining our team here. Thank Thank you so much. much. Thank you guys so much. Aww. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And now we would like to introduce our expert discussant for the case, Dr. Simran Singh, our beloved program director who specializes in adult congenital heart disease and interventional cardiology. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds from New York City at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dan, Amit, and to your entire Cardio Nerds crew, thank you so much for this episode and all the prior episodes over the past year. They've been incredibly inspirational and really set the standard for how podcasts should be done in cardiology and in education in general. So well done. My name is Harsimran Singh. I'm an adult congenital heart disease specialist and an interventional cardiologist. But one of my most important hats is I'm the program director in cardiology at Weill Cornell New York Presbyterian Hospital. 
That means I get to work with incredible future cardiologists and trainees, such as the three who presented the case today, Dr. Jaya Kanduri, Dr. Dan Liu, and Dr. Joseph Wang. Congrats to you on articulating your clinical reasoning and elucidating the process by which you approached the acute presentation in this patient. To summarize, we have a young woman in her 20s with a history of a unicuspid aortic valve and aortic valve stenosis who underwent a childhood Bentall procedure with a mechanical aortic valve, who presented with acute mechanical valve thrombosis and ensuing cardiogenic shock. Let me start off with my perspective as an ACHD doctor and talk about our diagnosis of unicuspid aortic valve. The unicuspid aortic valve is a very rare diagnosis. Echo studies suggest it comes about around 1 in 5,000 to 1 in 10,000 echoes being read. As Jaya pointed out, it is useful to think of unicuspid aortic valve disease in the spectrum of bicuspid aortic valve disease. Bicuspid aortic valves represent roughly 2% of the population, with about 50% requiring some intervention of either the aortic valve or the proximal aorta by age 50, and upwards of 75% requiring some intervention for their bicuspid aortic valve disease in their lifetime. Unicuspid valves, phenotypically on echo, can have two raphi and have a single comma shore that appears in its opening like a teardrop appearance. Most patients with significant unicuspid valve disease will present in childhood with aortic stenosis and more rarely with aortic regurgitation. Similar to bicuspid aortic valves, there can be associated aortopathy of the aortic root and ascending aorta with some association with aortic coarctation and coronary anomalies. One of the most challenging clinical decisions when patients with significant aortic valve disease, either unicuspid or bicuspid, present and require aortic valve replacement is the type of valve chosen. And like most things in medicine, this is a case where one size does not fit all. Each valve choice has certain pros and cons that have to be considered. A bioprosthetic aortic valve, which is an excellent choice in older adults, lasts only 10 to 15 years. And despite the current transcatheter valve revolution, does require another intervention when that valve fails. On the other hand, mechanical valves can potentially last a lifetime, but require vigorous compliance to anticoagulation and a frank discussion with the patient and family about dietary discipline, avoiding certain contact sports, and considerations of anticoagulations and pregnancy down the road. There are several other viable valve choices to consider in patients with pure aortic valve disease and especially in young children. That includes the Ross procedure and a relatively new procedure known as the Ozaki procedure. As you know, the Ross procedure consists of replacing the aortic valve with a pulmonary autograft, your own pulmonary valve. In the pulmonary position, one places either a homograft or a bioprosthetic valve, depending on the age of the patient. The benefits of this procedure include that your neoaortic valve is your own biologic tissue, so it will generally grow with the child as they grow up and could potentially last a lifetime. This procedure does not require lifelong anticoagulation. However, you are changing a one-valve problem by creating a two-valve issue where you do have a pulmonary homograft or bioprosthetic valve that will eventually require replacement 
The Ozaki procedure, which was developed by a Japanese heart surgeon, Dr. Shijiuki Ozaki, in 2007, has a growing expertise worldwide, which reconstructs the aortic valve with tissue from the patient's own pericardium. Hemodynamically, an individually designed Ozaki valve behaves just like your own native, non-diseased aortic valve would. There's no need for anticoagulation, and overall the procedure is very appealing. Still, the Ozaki procedure is relatively new with limited long-term outcomes data. Although there is great excitement in the cardiothoracic surgical community and in our own institution. For this particular patient, neither Ross nor Ozaki were viable options, in part because she also had significant aortic root and ascending aortic dilation in conjunction with her unicuspid aortic valve stenosis. That left the Bental with either a mechanical aortic valve or a bioprosthetic valve as her optimal options when she underwent this at age 16. Okay, now I want to fast forward to her acute presentation, which was the real emphasis of this case. There were several amazing clinical pearls that Jaya, Dan, and Joe brought up that I want to emphasize in her presentation. For starters, prosthetic valve thrombosis is rare, but an incredibly serious condition that requires immediate attention. Her case was hyperacute, but sometimes these patients present less acutely. So it's important to keep this on your differential diagnosis in anyone presenting with acute heart failure who's had either a bioprosthetic or a mechanical valve. It doesn't just have to be a mechanical valve. Recognizing this, which requires advanced imaging, including transesophageal echo and occasionally CT, is the first step. And appreciating that anticoagulation and a wait-and-see approach is rarely adequate. These patients require thrombolytics, which she was unfortunately not a candidate for given her intracerebral hemorrhage in the past, and or emergent surgery. Other teaching points that I thought were invaluable during this case was how acute aortic regurgitation looks different than chronic aortic regurgitation. You may be underwhelmed if you look at only color Doppler and you need other parameters to help you in your assessment and understand that this LV has not yet adapted to the aortic regurgitation state and thus more likely to go into heart failure and cardiogenic shock. There's no clinical question that this patient presented in cardiogenic shock with a cardiac index of 1.1 liters per minute per meter squared, which is dramatically low, and the inpatient team picked this up immediately. I do want to use this juncture and this platform to appeal to fellows across the land to be very careful with the classically quoted eyeball test to decide if someone is sick or not. That test often fails in the young who will minimize symptoms and look better prior to clerical examination, hemodynamic assessment until they don't. Once the diagnosis was made, this patient needed emergent surgery for her aortic valve thrombosis. One of the limiting factors can be how long it takes to mobilize your team in place to get her the care that she needs. There have been other CardioNerds podcasts talking about cardiogenic shock and the importance of cardiac shock teams, but let this case remind everyone of their significance. The ability to gather physicians and providers in critical care, advanced heart failure, CT surgery, and interventional cardiology within five minutes of a pager going off is incredibly powerful. 
It allows immediate meeting of the minds and best practice decisions to give our sickest patients a fighting chance. In this patient, the CT surgical team responding to her shock was the team that took her to the operating room immediately and saved her life by debriding and debulking the mechanical aortic valve thrombus. That itself was not an easy decision, as certainly the instinct would be to do an aortic valve replacement, though more complicated in a bentol mechanical valve. I also thought it was a great teaching point about the standard of LV decompression during VA ECMO and how challenging a case can be when you have a mechanical aortic valve coupled with small vasculature and additional intracranial hemorrhage. The heroic efforts of all the different services that helped her in her acute need saved her life, and we will forever be grateful for everyone's efforts on her behalf. But it was brought up as an incredibly important point in how do we avoid this for her in the future. After all, she's still in her 20s. She still has a mechanical aortic valve, which by the way, is working excellent after the surgery with trace aortic regurgitation and low aortic valve gradients. Her LV function improved and she is flourishing in the ambulatory setting. But how do we avoid these type of presentations for patients like her in the future? It goes back to my original point that one size does not fit all and the choice of valve at the very beginning is important and must be patient specific in consideration of other social determinants that may make a difference in their overall outcome. I will add that COVID-19 pandemic over the past years has been a sentinel event in the medical lives of healthcare professionals and the entire world population. But what it did emphasize to me is how many patients were harmed, not only because of COVID, but because they stopped accessing medical care during those months out of fear, out of a desire to avoid hospitals or laboratories and check their INR. It is our job as healthcare professionals to educate our patients, our friends, our family, to make sure that the lessons learned over this pandemic don't repeat themselves and that our patients receive optimal health. Let me thank again my cardiology fellows, Jaya, Dan, and Joe, our two cardio nerds experts, Amit and Dan, and the entire cardio nerds team for this outstanding broadcast. I needed some coffee, but Dan, do you want to take over in the meantime? <laughs> Dan, is that you snorting? Well, I don't know. I have plausible deniability because you turned off the video. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay, redo, redo. It's late. I'm sorry, guys. I'll stop.